2: Hey, greetings, guys! Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. As always, this is Scott from Boston, and this is Jim coming to you from LA. And special guest joining us today, Mister Stephen Biscotti. Who um, anyone who's familiar with Instagram and uh, familiar with Universal Monsters knows Mister Biscotti from his just amazing work. Um, I mean, call him a, a peer leader, community leader, just you know, somebody who's really you know from taken to the forefront with Instagram, social media, and co- you know, collectively. Not, not only specifically to Universal, but just in this monster universe, you know, it's really just been, uh, you know, a- it's call it kind of the glue keeping a lot of people together. So, welcome, Steve. So happy to have you, man.
1: I'm so happy to be here. I feel like uh, like if I could have you introduce me wherever I go, I would love that because it really was very humbling, <laughs> and it means a lot to be recognized like that. And I'm I'm really excited to be here with you
2: guys. Awesome. No, it's so good to hear. And it's like the more people I talk to on Instagram and Facebook, they I mean people that I respect quite a bit. They always. You know, we'll mention you. It's like you know, Steve was like you know, I don't say like the 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 on the I guess you know maybe on the forefront of kind of a lot of this new you know this new age of of horror you know with yeah. social media you know especially with like you know the twenties and the thirties somethings you know it's obviously horror has always been you know huge like. In my generation, Jim's generation, like, in you know, started without parents, but it's so nice to see, you know, the next crop, like the folks, you know, 10, 15 years younger than Jim, really taking, you know, taking the torch here. And it's just, I was, I was, so just, cool. gonna,
0: I was just gonna use the torch reference because I thought it was funny. So good job carrying <laughs> the torch, as it were. Well, not, not up it... to the castle Frankenstein, just, you know, onward. Of course. <laughs> well, you no, know, I do appreciate
1: that. And, you know, the, what I have to add to it is just the fact that, you know, I grew up with the Universal Monsters. And what's so special about them is just how generational they are and how that appeal is just so. Everlasting from, you know, 30s up to now and and to be a part of the community and where it's at now, where it's not just, you know, 30 somethings, but, you know, 40 somethings, 50 somethings, 60 somethings that are still just so collectively excited about these movies it's really special. And, and so in pairing the porch, I always like to imagine it like, you know, it's like Castle Frankenstein or Castle Dracula. And we're just kind of like walking through and, and lighting candles, you know, along the way to just make sure it's still burning and well lit for the others that are eventually going to come and visit, you know, like, you know, weeks and months and, and years later from us. And I think for, for all the work that you're doing, along with like the stuff that, I get to be a part of myself. Uh, it's special and it's important.
2: It is important, like you said, just for you know to keep that memory alive from you know our grandparents and great grandparents' generation, and you know for our kids and our grandkids. I think it's a great, great analogy. You know, walking through the castle and you know making sure those torches and those fires are lit. You know, that people yeah. can see a really clear path. And you know, it to, to, for me, it's just I want to make sure the material is as accessible as I can. I mean, especially for the folks that are a little bit older than us, you know, the fifties the sixties that, you know, maybe, you know, haven't been brought up so much with the internet that it's hard to find, you know, to really mine, you know, gold or find like hard to find, you know, the photos or hard to find facts. So, you know, I feel like, you know, Jim and I both work really, really hard as part of this podcast and individually on our own on own pages. And I know you do as well, Stephen, to just tr- share as much as we can. Like we, I, I, we don't hold anything back. You know, if we find a, you know, a gem, first thing I want to do is get it the hell out there and just share it with the world.
1: Oh, completely. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: And we're in a, We're in
0: a moment in time where that the ability to do that is so amazing. I mean, you know, w- within within 20 short years we've gone from writing a writing a letter and sending it in to famous monsters and hoping they publish it in the back and waiting for months, you know, in expectation to an instantaneous community that exists you know, organically as 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 long as as broad as as we can make it. So and I sharing information, sharing appreciation, and and crossing the generations. Um, I, I think the affection, especially of these particular films, just breaks down all the all the generational barriers and and brings us all into something we all have in common. And I think that's in a, in a times like this. I I just I think that's the greatest thing.
1: No, it sure is, and I think that that you know, especially with like social media, you know, we all talk about and we all recognize like the pros and cons of it. I think social media, when it's done right, when it's done with purpose, such mm-hmm. as using it as a way to outreach uh, about films that you enjoy or, or classic film actors, there's really a, a unique experience that comes along with that. And and as you had said, that you know, you'll find pictures, and it's something that you feel like has never been seen before and you can't wait to get it out because you just want yeah. to share it with everyone and it's almost like you know I in a lot of times when I'm either writing an article for universalmonstersuniverse.com or or I'm putting something together for Instagram or, or social media I always like to think like well what would you know farce Ackerman do what would Zachary do if like they right. were alive right now like how would they be doing this and when I start to then think about well they would probably do this and I know I'm going in the right direction. If I feel like it's something that they wouldn't be doing, then I kind of like scale back a bit. What would,
0: what would Forey do?
1: Exactly. What would Uncle Fari <laughs> we need, do? We
0: need, yeah. we need t-shirts, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. With like, like a little Borgo Pass Horror Podcast yeah. logo on like oh, the shoulder or, or like on the shirt as well.
0: I got to meet him one time and, and it was, it's, it was a big moment in my life. I'd first moved to LA in uh, like 2006 or something like that. And I got to meet him very briefly at, uh, at Ray Bradbury's memorial, actually, I think. I'm not sure. No, it might be the other way around. Anyway, moving
2: on. Cool. <laughs> I mean, this is just so cool that, I mean, we're all, you know, the three of us and certainly more than just the three of us, but so like-minded that it's just not for the fact of doing something just to do something. But we feel, in Christ, Jim and I talk about it all the time, a real heavy responsibility to do it right. You know, do and it's and not just throwing it out there. If, if we're putting something out here, especially with something so near and dear like Universal, we want to get this thing right, and we want to you know just just do right by not only us but by the people. And you know, I don't know if you listen to the Frankenstein episode. I was literally like sick to my stomach before I went <laughs> into to to do that episode because I felt so much prep. Pre- I guess yeah. pressure in
0: a good way. Yeah. I mean you got it you want to pay you want to treat it so seriously but you also have to make it fun too
2: there's it's a right. it's a tough
0: line we walk anyway
2: is. so let's get going i mean so steven you had pretty much um, i mean besides the movies that we've already covered the entire catalog of universal and you know non-universal too sticking to the 30s 40s 50s uh, and you came back to us with mummy's hand and you want me to just, I mean, get into it why of all the movies we could have done why uh, 1940s <laughs> mummy's hand
1: I, I, I love how you say that out of all the movies that we could have done I feel like as uh, we were just you know chatting before we started recording it's the idea that you know the mummy's hand is such an iconic and influential film in the mummy legacy for universal and just mummy films period that uh, when you think of the mummy especially in the universal legacy especially now, I think people's minds immediately go to Stephen Summers' 1999 film. And then, of course, naturally, the 1932 Carl Freund film. But so many, I think, fans of Universal, of The Mummy, and just film forget, you know, William uh, Christie Caban's, you know, 1940 film. And, you know, from the fact that you have a new mummy in it, where it's a little more action-oriented, that it was so influential and shaped Mm -hmm. the rest of The Mummy legacy... Right. It's so important to talk about. And and I, I often feel like, you know, you could talk about Frankenstein, you could talk about Bride, and you could go on about those movies forever, you know, until like your last day. But talk about something like Mummy's Hand or Invisible Man Returns or any of those later films, I feel like that's where it gets really special because that's when you're really honoring and preserving the whole entire legacy of the films. Like, there are 30 films, you know. Aside from like those big, you know, like eight films. And uh, I love The Mummy. That's always been my favorite universal monster. And The Mummy's Hand is easily my favorite of The Mummy movies. You know, of all of them.
2: Really nice. Cool. I mean, no. And I meant no disrespect to The Mummy's Hand when I said, why this movie? (laughs) Or any other part of The Mummy. No. <laughs> I, I I love this movie. I adore the Mummy's hand, but you know, it's just always interesting. you know, why, you know, why this one? What is the passion? You know, what makes this your passion piece? And and again, something Jim and I have been, you know, talked at nauseam over, you know, since we started the podcast was how important it was for us to mine some of those lesser known the B level movies. Um, so again, yeah. perfect choice for us. Did didn't need a champion.
1: If my legacy could ultimately one day be he he never stopped talking about The Mummy's Hand and Paris and <laughs> leaves, then I know that I could die happy.
2: There you go. Hey, it might start right here, so let's go.
1: <laughs> yes,
2: let's. Awesome. All right, so The Mummy's Hand, 1940, um, starring Dick Foran as Steve Banning, uh, Peggy Morin as uh, Martha Salvini, Wallace Ford as Babe Jensen, uh, George Zucco, who's, of course, a longtime uh, Universal player as um and and tom taylor this time as, as um Karis. so he'll go on obviously later on the Karras role will be better known with luncheon jr but this role here the first time out as caris in the 40s is stuntman tom taylor and i just got to say right off the bat i i love him as caris i mean just the, the makeup the movement he is fantastic yeah, oh, I think he's yeah. actually
0: really scary in his in his build and in his shamble and and whatnot. I mean, I think Longchamp Junior does good stuff, but but no, I I like Tom a lot as as his character and this is our first uh not to skip ahead but this is our first time we've seen a mummy character who is a shambling bandage wrapped creature you know that never happens and i mean it it happens almost kind of off screen in in the original but this is this is i always talk about prototypes this is the prototype where if you watch scooby-doo and the mummy that mummy is more or less you know indebted to this character
1: Oh, completely. And, and again, I feel like that's another aspect of the film where it's just so influential in regards to all of like the way and the way that it shaped the mummy and how people perceive, you know, the character. You, you could go across the world and just tell somebody like, well, describe the mummy. And it's that shambling, bandaged, you know, monster. Mm-hmm. And when you go back to the 32 one, he's only the mummy for like three to four minutes. Yeah. You know, of screen time and then it's all, and you then, know, he's just then he's wrinkly
0: it. Boris Karloff in a fez.
1: Yeah, it completely. Yeah. And I remember growing up, uh, I was born in 1989. And so growing up throughout the 90s, like the imagery of the mummy that I was so taken by was the bandaged monster. And right. I remember the first time that I had seen the 1932 picture. I was really shocked by it because he's like you said, it's like a wrinkly Boris Karloff, you know, in a fez. And so for me, I just like really gravitated towards the the uh, 1959 Hammer picture, the parents mm. uh, Fisher film with you know uh, Christopher Lee and and Peter Cushing, and that owes itself completely to Mummy's Hand, you know the Mummy's Tomb, and, and all of these movies, and and what Tyler did with the character, just so wonderful, and and it also kind of helped influence Chaney, of course, and and Chaney added on to it. But when you think of the Mummy, I honestly have to say, you know, there, there's a reason. Everyone thinks of Karloff as Frankenstein. I feel like Tyler, you know, and Cheney, especially Tyler, since we're talking about the hand, you know, should be spoken about more given how much he gave to that role. Agreed? And you have,
2: and of course, Jack Pierce, you know, makeup man, Jack Pierce, just doing mm-hmm. a, a fantastic job as always as, you know, with this mummy makeup. So all right, well, let's get rolling. So um, opening scene, kind of a trope we see um, from this movie than uh, other movies or other mummy movies of the 40s is that we see um, kind of a high priest um, sitting in the temple of Karnak um, who's dying. He's you know, aged out and um, he's basically trying to shepherd in someone to take his place. And in this in this case, the next in line is uh, George Zucco who comes in and it's a kind of a cool scene. You see him climbing up these long, um, stone stairways into this temple. And then they have um, between the, the high priest and, and Zako's character and Hondeb kind of explaining the whole, um, you know, the, the history of the, of the mummy and the, you know, things that they have to do. So yeah. I mean, Steve, this is your movie. Do you want to kind of get into some of the, the pathion of, you know, kind of the, I guess I'll say the responsibilities of the high priest.
1: Oh, the high, yeah. Well, I, I mean, one of the things that I love so much about this is, is, that there's so much given to the to the backstory of the mummy and it it plays a little bit through what we know from the 1932 original but it's a complete you know reboot by all means and and so you get into like the high priest karnak and uh like the like the um, uh the seven jackals i think it is like the hill of the seven jackals and you get all of that but you find out, you know, from, of course, that Andoheb that, you know, that he's, of course, one of the primary foils in hand. He's, you know, a member of the secret society of priests and, and sort of in like a semi-convoluted plot. You know, the priest's main objective is the preservation of Paris you know, the Egyptian buried alive after stealing the sacred Kana leaves in an effort to resurrect the dead princess Ananka. And they've kept Kairos alive over years in a stasis of sorts so that the day Princess Ananka's tomb is raided, Kairos is to kill all of those who enter. And uh, as with any great game movie, we really wouldn't have it any other way.
2: So, yeah, we got a scene of, again, kind of the explanation of, um, of Kairos and what needs to be done. And they have a cutscene of you know lifted right out right from the mummy 1932 of um you know those who have seen that movie the scene where boris kaloff breaks in to alonka's tomb and you know attempts to resurrect her using you know the ton of leaves and and of course is is discovered and taken out um and then you know ultimately i want to say put to death because he was never killed but you know buried alive his tongue was cut out um you know wrapped in those the memorable bandages and everything so you know right from 1932 we have this cut scene as the high priest is explaining to the you know Zuko character, um, kind of the history of Karla of um I said Karloff the history the history of Karis
0: of <laughs> of, of yeah okay. with 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 some really good inserts where they reshot scenes with Tom Tyler almost like perfect shot for per shot angle and 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 lens and and you know
2: backdrop and and inserted him in there. It looks really darn good, you know. It does. You wouldn't, have, I mean, unless you really had a sharp eye or you know would, knew what you were l- watching, it would be really difficult to tell. I mean, I think the only thing, yeah. probably what's a little bit obvious is um, clearly Karloff laying down and they're kind of wrapping his head. And you can see, you know, you, I mean, you know Karloff, you can see the yeah. eyes and the nose. And yeah. But other than that, you're right, Jim, they did a fantastic job and they put a lot of care into making it as seamless as they could. I mean, yeah. we're talking about Karloff's
0: obviously not as quite as ripped and buff as as Tom Tyler. is So Bodybuilding there's some Tyler. scenes where
2: you see Karloff's kind of ropey
0: arms and stuff, but, you know, it's <laughs> what it is. Um, I think they do. Yeah, they do a great job.
1: I have a question for both of you. Uh, do you have a preference as to like the 1932 backstory or Mummy's Hand backstory in which you see, you know, Karis before he became a mummy or in regards to I, 32, Imhotep before he became a mummy?
0: I I, I would argue. I mean, I'm a, I guess I'm a of two minds. I, I think uh, Karloff with his partial... Ah, uh, East Indian heritage looks the part a little better. With 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 Tom Tyler, you're getting this very uh, American, you know, Anglo-Saxon-looking dude in the the Egyptian gear, and and it smacks of a little bit of a you know cultural appropriation thing that we would we would call it now. However, I actually like the idea that Karis, as opposed to Imhotep, Karis is sentenced to to you know this this eternal whatever. But he's also got a job, like they, can, you know, to protect the princess. So, so I like that twist of the story. But I think they did a good job with that, as far as turning this into a franchise, so that he could keep coming back and back. And and it wasn't just to bring his lost love back to life. It's to it's to because because the bringing the lost love back to life and everything is is so was so based on Dracula. It was such a a vehicle for Karloff that imitated Dracula, and and it sort of existed as a in the shadow of that original story. This creates its own new narrative, uh, which is vaguely unique and kind of pulpy and and fun and just uh, and again, like just continues the story on better. So yeah, I'm of of a kind of mixed things, but I I do love this version.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm with you, Jay. I really do like if I could take a little from column A, a little from column B. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I love the look of of Kalloff. Like you said, he just he has that, you know, the Indian and just I mean, I just I'm such a Kalloff um the gauntness in yeah. anyways yeah i'm just and I'm, tr- I'm trying to look at it you know kind of unemotionally but he just has such a great look but yeah i i, I have just so much respect for it. you know not only Dad, but what they did here in these 40s kind of the revival of the mummy movies making chorus you know more you know action oriented with the um you know with the shroud and everything and yeah kind of that gimpy hand or the gimpy arm and the gimpy leg and it's just it's just fantastic yeah, yeah. stuff they do there in in this flashback thing
0: real quick i just want to note they do there's a little edit when the um the soldiers kill the slaves uh, and i've just because i've just watched mummy and, and mummy's hand almost back to back and making notes for for the show um there's this one shot where the the guys throw the and famously it's the same actors throwing the spears and then the same actors getting impaled with the spears the next day Um, they, they just brought him back and had him killed themselves. And there's a shot in the mummy where the spears all the way through the guy's rib cage, basically. And he's like, oh, and he's agonizing and falling over. Um, that's the 1932 version. When they do the 1941, they cut that out and it's just the end where you see him. So you don't see the spear penetrating all the way through his body. And I think that's that's because the the uh, the Breen Office had come into effect between the, the two times, the the releases of the two films. And I think they made a little snippet right there.
2: Interesting. Yeah, certainly Mummy 32 would have been the you know pre-code. And I'll have pre-code, to go yeah. back and look at that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. It's it's like 10 frames, but it it, it it's only because I've watched them almost like one night after the other. And that was such a gruesome scene from the mummy. I mean, my father, who's you know, in his seventies, you know, to this day will still talk about as a boy seeing that. It's, he always remember. he doesn't remember really? anything else from the mummy, but just that scene of the- That's the thing being, they imprinted.
0: That's so funny. Yeah,
2: just still in his mind. I mean, he couldn't tell you anything about the mummy itself, but he made, mm-hmm. he remembers that spear going through the, new, the Nubian slave. So Interesting. So yeah, so the high priest um, is kind of handing over the reins and has passed away. So now we have uh, George Zecko kind of taking control and understanding that during the cycle of the full moon, when the jackals howl and you know all these these cool things, um, Karras has the ability to come back to life. So hit the instructions are, um, during the cycle of full moon, uh, to brew three Tana leaves will give Karras, um, keep his heart beating, I guess. And then mm-hmm. for action for, you know, if you want Karras, you know, to give him movement, we'll brew the nine Tana leaves. So that's not the end. rules,
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> but, right? but
2: don't do 12. <laughs> because anything anything more than nine, he becomes an unstoppable monster. And I mean, don't yeah. you just want to see what the hell he's going to do? If you, do, I just want to brew like a like a hundred of them. And like, right? <laughs> but that's what's great about it. It
0: sets it up. Like it sets the 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 um the rules themselves allow for the idea that the rules could go haywire and and all hell breaks loose like that it, it sets up from the first few minutes thing like whatever happens this can't happen right and and it leads right
2: to the end of the movie and it's great it's, it's a great setup we meet archaeologist Steve Banning and his sidekick, babe who i they're really good um you know great chemistry and they're they're a lot of fun together so um they're in just a bazaar in uh, Cairo and you know Steve is more of the um he is more the professional archaeologist um you know kind of has a, a an eye and a nose for you know kind of on the scent and discovers a vase um kind of this cracked broken vase that he believe believes has the clues to find alanka's tomb and sold sold to him by michael mark from son of
0: frankenstein yeah um, michael mark who is he the helped. elders uh e- e- igor has has it in for
2: Right. I could, I mean, going through his IMDb, I mean, he was, you know, Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, House of Frankenstein. Yeah, Um, he's, yeah, he was in a lot. He's always one of those recognizable guys. He's not, you know, never in a movie for too, too long, but it's like, hey, I know, know this guy.
0: He could play an Egyptian. Throw them in a thing <laughs> was, was the was the attitude. I love the there's a there's a little opening scene right before the Babe and 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 uh, and Steve scene where uh, they get this kind of I don't know if it's newsreel footage or just B roll. It looks like it was shot like more like a 16 millimeter of of actually 1930s era Cairo. And and as someone who grew up with I mean Raiders of the Dark factored very large in my childhood, um, which is set in 1930s Cairo. It was it's amazing to see actual footage of. 1930s Cairo, which which frankly looks a lot more metropolitan than Raiders of the Lost Ark would have led you to believe. It, it it looked it looks kind of like New York, but with a lot of you know different signage and stuff. Anyway, it was neat. I was going to say, Stephen, does that remind you of like Times Square at all?
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh <so> maybe. <laughs> it's
0: a little. Little different. A few more camels. Um, A few, just
1: maybe, just a few more.
0: <laughs> I I really like I, I like Stephen Babes uh, characters in this. It sort of makes me realize, like we always think about Abner Costello meet Frankenstein as this lightning moment of like that someone somewhere was just was like, what if we take a comedy duo and put him in a monster movie? It'll be you know, and and we have this this amazing you know piece of, of film history that that changed you know that propagated a lot of other films of the type you watch something like this and you see that Universal was kind of messing around with this idea of having a a slightly comedic duo in their horror films as early as 1940 i mean i mean they're not steve is obviously a lot more serious than than bud abbott and babes a little bit more of a comic relief in in, the, in shorter stocky kind of thing in in the Lu costello mode but you can see like universal is sort of trying this out as a way of like how do we how do we make these films really entertaining can they can they be fun and scary at the same time? So I just want to point that out. I, I really I think you see just the the germ of Abno Custom Meet Frankenstein a little bit in this thing. And and also just it's a very pulpy adventurer, you know. Uh the the main dude always has his his slightly less macho sidekick. And it's like Holmes and Watson and everything. So it's it's a fun, it's a fun duo to enter this movie with.
1: I'd like to add on to that uh with just like a like a personal note that the character of Steve Banning and Dave Jensen are actually my favorite of the like I wouldn't say ancillary characters, but my favorite of like the human uh, characters within mm-hmm. any of the Universal Monster films. And, yeah, uh, especially how when you move on to like even like, the sequels, how like they follow through. It's something that you didn't really see in so many of the other pictures. And like what you said, it was like this prototype, this like mold that they were that they were going with, especially with uh, Dick Foran and uh, and Wallace Ford. That you just feel. Later on, Nabin Castellamy Frankenstein and ultimately right up until you know Mummy 1999 with like Brendan Fraser and John Hanna, there's very yeah. much that kind of like pulp, you know, Saturday morning uh um, kind of action hero uh that it, you get it from is.
0: it. It is. And even and even back into I I I know that this uh I know because I read it on IMDb. Um <laughs> That this film did influence Spielberg a little bit uh, with Indiana Jones, this idea of this adventuring archaeologist, and I think you see it in Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom with with Indian Short Round. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there's always this duo. Also, it's always good in writing to have a character that the main character needs to explain everything to, because then you're explaining it to the audience as
2: well. So it's always helpful. Now that's, I had never heard that, but it makes a lot of sense, you know, is Spielberg getting some influence and, you know, some of that comic relief and, you know, yeah. kind of, like you said, mixing in the adventure with, you know, some of the slapstick stuff. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, one of my, you know, one of my, you know, I don't know, I wouldn't say a favorite movie, but like the the latter Black Hat with Basil Rathbone, you see a lot of, you know, that's spliced in two. Like you said, that comedy, um, I mean, that's that movie is almost over the top at points, um, yeah.
0: but but the, the, there was this German idea, and I, I think it really works here. And 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 Stephen, yeah, to your point, I, I agree. I, I think there is a lot of Stephen Summers mummy movie in this movie I, far more. That movie is far more similar to this than it is the the 32 much more gothic. You know Carl Freud film that's for sure' it's completely
1: completely absolutely and and I know that the fan base especially around the mummy 1999 it's it's really exploded over the last few years and you know I see it all the time on like Instagram like whenever I post about like the mummy 1999 or whenever I see conversations happening there's a lot of love for that. And I always try and like enter that conversation with the, you know, if, if you love this movie, you know, you might want to go back and watch the mummy's hand because there's so much of the spirit of that and the DNA of that film mm-hmm. that permeates throughout that Steven Summers movie. I, I mean, we get to it a little bit later on, you know, after, you know, uh, Steve Manning and Dave Jensen approach uh, George Zuko's uh, Andohab, you know, yeah. at the Cairo museum. And there's a lot of that, that plays like earlier moments of the mummy 1999 with like Eric Avery's, uh, Dr. Terrence Bay when when they bring him like the map to uh,
0: right. an Anaptra, and those are fun movies too. By the way, I, I'm a big fan of the summer's uh, mummy movies. I think I think they're a, a heck of a good time, and they're they look great, and I think they're they're good fun.
2: So going back to the bazaar. So yeah, Banning has found a vase, which they, he believes may contain the whereabouts of Alanka's tomb. So brings it back to um, Cairo Museum. And let me, before we get actually to the Cairo Museum, there's kind of a homeless guy, um, you know, sitting down He's he's been begging for change. And, you know, you can give him a few, cha- a few pieces of coin and he'll tell you your future or whatnot. So he's kind of watching the, you know, this all go down. Um, so you're not really too sure who he is, is. Ultimately, you learn he's a, a spy of um of, Zucco, of course, but um, see him kind of eyeing everything in, in the bazaar. So finally, we come back to the Cairo Museum and Banning is um, presenting his find to uh, Dr. Petrie, who mm-hmm. is, you know, I don't know if it's a teacher, his boss, you know, somebody that he respects and kind of a renowned archaeologist as well. And um, Petrie is, you know, confirms basically everything that Banning thinks that this is a legitimate vase and legitimate um, map to Elankas tomb, but you know, of course, Petrie needs one more, <laughs> needs someone else to uh, you know confirm that, and walks into the room, and who do we see is uh, George Zacco now playing kind of the dual role of not only the high priest, but kind of the uh, I don't, I'm not sure his exact position, but you know, certainly an overseer of the Cairo Museum. You guys right. have a better sense, maybe, of uh, what Zacco's role here is at at the museum.
1: I always f- felt like, again, like he was kind of like, you know, Eric Avery's character, Dr. Uh, Terrence Bay, where he's kind of like the head uh, curator of the museum. Yeah. I right. always felt like he was kind of like in that serving, servicing in that role in the event that he would probably at some point see, you know, like two young bucks come in and, and, and have found, you know, something uh, serious to, to his cause.
2: Sure. So, I mean, immediately, um, you know, Zucko knows that they have, have uncovered um, something that should not have been recovered or certainly, you know, not to his uh, liking. So he immediately poo-poo's it and says it's fake, um, wants, you know, Banning to just forget about anything, you know, Banning. The, the minute he finds the vase, he's got, you know, all these wheels in motion in his mind to start it, you know, bring everyone out to the desert and, you know, really start, you know, searching for this tomb. And so obviously in Dohab, uh, seeing the vase, knowing that, you know, it is legitimate and not wanting Banning, of course, to discover the whereabouts of Alanka's tomb. Um, you know, takes the vase from Banning and drops it and smashes it. And, you know, a little bit of a, a tense scene, office to reimburse Banning. And so at that point, that almost just reassures um, Banning that he's onto something. Like he does not trust. Um, I don't know if it's trust is the right word at this point, but, you know, he's, you know, very sure that he's on the right track, as Dr. Petrie is as well. So I think it's kind of an interesting, you know, we kind of have this like this double agent of, uh, you know, in Doheb um, as the museum curator, but also now as the high priest to protect um, Alanka.
0: Well, I, I like the I like the bit where he, he's trying to, you know, steer them off course. So he mummy splains uh the whole thing to them. as well, if you really were a uh, a real archaeologist, you would understand that the uh you know the cross section of the uh, da, 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 you know, um he he, he kind of makes up a whole bunch of gobbledygook to say, like, well, yeah, you know, you're obviously you know, and that's why I think I mean I think I I know Steve is an archaeologist, but there is this idea that he's more of like a bit of a tomb raider than a a pure um, academic, right? I've like always got that impression. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not respected, not not you know considered uh,
2: a a real a real scientist and stuff. So yeah, that's the idea. Second tier. So yeah, they're on about to start, or you know, according to you know, in Banning's mind, anyways, he is now full speed ahead to start this expedition. Um, but the issue is, of course, that they don't have any kind of money. So he and Babe kind of discussed with Dr. Petrie, um, you know, what they need to do to, you know, get some money and blah, blah, blah. So there's a quick scene later on in a, um, kind of a, a you know, I guess a bar, I'm going to call it cafe, but, you know, bar that um, Babe is, you know, has a card trick and he's kind of, you know, putting one over on the bartender to win free drinks. So he's got this card, you, know, if, you if you can you know, pick the right card, you know, you select a card, and if Babe can guess it, you owe him a drink and et cetera, et cetera, just some, you know, kind of a little, some business to get himself a free drink and walks. You get the feeling
0: uh, this is how Babe has, has made his way for a while here. Like he's, <laughs> he's, he's that, that's what he brings to the, to the duo a little bit is a little bit of this uh, uh, plucky. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't want
2: to call it scheme, but yeah. Well, he mentions you know, a few times, you know, they're, they're from Brooklyn. So it's, yeah, you just picture like these, bo- you know, good old boys from the streets of, you know, Brooklyn, you know doing whatever they can. And yeah, he's got like some little side, some little side business with, you know, cards to, you know, trick people mm-hmm. out of, you know, money or in this case, alcohol. So he's doing very, very well. He's got, you know, drinks all over the place. So uh, we meet for the first time, the great Silvani who enters the right. bar. So he's a performing um, a magician from America who's, you know, has a little um, show here in, in Cairo and he's actually just about to leave. It didn't sound like they were doing great, great business. So um, Silvani comes in, sits down, of course, babe, the minute he sees him, he's like, uh, you know, his eyes get wide. He's like, Ooh, uh, you know, real pigeon here that I can, he you sees know, a mark. Yeah. Yeah. Total mark. <laughs> so Silvani comes up to the bar and, uh, it's kind of cool. You, know, you see, you know, Banning, he could see behind the bar, there's a sign literally advertising the great Salvani as this, you know, musician, uh, musician, as this great um, magician. So Banning's trying to get Babe's attention, like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't try to put one over on this guy. And it's kind of a cool little scene. Yeah, Steve, you want to kind of take it from here? With-
1: oh, I, I'd love to. I absolutely have to say, this is one of my favorite, favorite moments in the whole movie. <laughs> the first time that I ever saw The Mummy's Hand, I actually stopped it and rewound it just to rewatch the whole, the, the whole sequence. I, I love uh, so much the, the, um, the chemistry between, you know, uh, uh, Banning and Jensen and Sylvani. I, I think Cecil Kellaway, uh, who played Sylvani is just, it's just so wonderful. And it, and it speaks to really the true spirit of, of what universal was doing best with making a mummy movie. And they were making it a very pulp adventure. Yeah with horror elements to it. And it's, when I think of a monster movie, you know, they're very different than horror movies and monster movies have that kind of like style to it and that, and that spirit of fun. That's what we all love about them. And so of course, yeah, you know, they're, they're in this bar and, and, you know, they're trying to almost con, you know, Salvani a bit, you know, with the card trick that that uh, that Gabe Jensen has. And of course, you know, unbeknownst to him, he doesn't realize that Salvani is, in fact, you know, the the famous American magician, the great Salvani. So Salvani gets one over on him, and that's their, their beginning entry point to basically court him to see if he'll help them travel to the Hill of the Seven Jackals, uh, which was actually a really fun reference to the 1932 film. And then ultimately uncover the tomb, and and of course then you know they're being watched, and a fight, a very comedic uh, fight uh, breaks out. Yeah, and I love the idea of them being spied upon uh, it, it, through uh, through the film. It, it's just um, it, it it's great, and and the the spying aspect is something that plays through even in in the sequel with like the Mummy's Tomb. It, it's a it's a little character and story flourishes that I, I just absolutely adore.
2: Yeah, I mean and Do-tep has, you know, minions every place. He kind of he has one lead minion that, you know, we'll get later on, you know, when they finally get to camp, who's, you know, kind of does his, you know, his business with the Tana Leaf, fluid and whatnot. But yeah, you've got f you've you get the idea that you know this high priest has you know, quite a few minions and to your point, you know, all over this bar and, um, you know, going back just to this and, and I agree, Steven, this is just a fantastic, fun scene. I think what puts this and this is just, I mean, you know, my personal opinion, what puts hand over, you know, ghost and tomb is just the the chemistry with these actors and actresses is just so it's just so natural and fun. Like the, you, you could see all these guys, you know, hang out in real life and just having like a total blast together. No, this and, doesn't yeah, feel like I, anything yeah, artificial. Yeah.
0: And I, I do think I think, um, you know, Steve and Babe make a great B movie duo. I, uh, and I think in being in being kind of a B movie duo and not an A movie duo, they're, they're not Humphrey Bogart. A lot of the onus is often this gets to be kind of a fun serial style. A lot of these 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 latter universal films. um start feeling more like when they the serials they did uh you know in in the same era and it, a lot of that's based on budget and how they shoot it and they'd shoot it in kind of just a master with two people talking and not really go in and do close-ups and and get too complicated because they shot them on on a low budget with a with a tight schedule but but what what also comes through is the the fun and this fight in the bar is really a really it's a brawl it's it's really like a uh, a Republic serial style fight where the people getting hit with chairs and this stuff. And it's all these stunt guys just running around and no one really gets hurt. No one, there's no, no one's getting stabbed. No one's whatever, you know, it's, it, 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 there's not, there's not the, the pitch of seriousness to it. It's just, it's just a good old fashioned, you know, fisticuffs. And they jump out the window and they they have to like get the magician guy out the window who's not exactly the most <laughs> agile guy ever and stuff. Um I wanted to just say that uh so so the the spy guy is played by an actor named Sig Arno and he was a, a German Jew who fled the Nazis in 1933 and made his way very slowly to to America and then started, you know, would get all these these parts as uh Arabic and Semitic type characters. I mean, he would he would had play a certain style, but uh but it's 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 you know it's he's he's got a great face and he's got a great look and stuff and again I I keep making the analogies but I can't help make the analogy to the 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 spy in the Cairo bazaar in Raiders of the Lost Ark I mean there's there's so much of this guy in that character um, you know with, with the guy with the monkey on the motorcycle and stuff um, it's really uh you you'd see the legacy this the 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 large footprint this this film this small B film uh, leaves behind it totally.
1: So one of the things that you had said was just that, you know, you had mentioned like the budget. And uh, so I just the movie cost 80,000 to make. And so like inflation today, I think that's just like a little over a million dollars. And you look at like the scale of what they were working on and and from what like, you know, the cast that they assembled to making this like really humble little installment you know that that absolutely it, it's it's a part of that like 1940s adventure serials that did go on to influence you know spielberg and and all of these you know yeah. of later uh films but what specifically struck me about the earlier words that you were saying was just how much fun it seemed like that they yeah. were all having with the cast and We often talk about how exciting it would be to be on, like, the set of, like, Phantom of the Opera or or Frankenstein, just to kind of, like, walk around the magnificence of of these sets, but with, like, The Mummy's Hand, this is kind of like the movie that I would love to have just been a fly on the wall or just to be there for, because it just, it seems like they were just having so much fun i think a lot of that has to go with the fact that like the griffin J and maxwell chain uh a, a script it's just it's so punchy and it's just so it, it, it's such a like a light-hearted effervescence to it where it, you know it doesn't really take itself seriously and it's not as dark or dramatic as you know frankenstein or dracula and right actually so because this is an original uh story that they had created but it really does seem like they were just having a blast making this movie.
2: I mean, you you knew pretty close. I mean, once they get into the kind of the barroom brawl and the first thing Sylvaini does is like jump up on the chair and he's like, oh, geez, you know, he's like his hands go to his head. So, you know, like, it's not going to be like knives and bloodshed. And um, But no, just it was a really fun time. So, yeah, so just really quick prior to this, um, this all-out brawl. So, um, Banning and Babe and Salvani have kind of come to an agreement. Salvani's got some money. Again, he's ending his tour, his magic, his magician tour. So, has a few bucks um, and was scheduled to go back to America with his daughter uh, Martyr, It sounded like the next day, he agrees to fund this expedition to find Alonka's tomb. So, of course, Banning and Babe are quite happy with that. And next scene after the bar fight is Salvani, you know, returning to his guess, hotel room where he's staying with his daughter, Marta, who's also part of his um, magician act. And she's, you know, learns of his dad giving away, you know, pretty much all of their money to these these two guys, um, so doesn't know where they live and everything. So of course she's extremely skeptical. Very, you know, seems very worldly. You know, I'm assuming she's handling. I'm hoping she's handling at least the the money and the business end. Of, I think so because
0: uh, I don't think he's very good at it. And I think he's also got a little bit of a pension for the bottle. So right, right. <laughs> um, uh, but but Heb has has beaten him home, and he's paid Marta a visit, and he's told her that her father's being swindled by these guys, and that um and, you know it tells him they're gonna they're gonna take him out of the desert and and leave him for dead you know the, there's bones in the desert of all these people that he really puts the a, a creepy fear into it and he's also a creepy i mean he kind of is eyeing her up and he's you know so so there's there's that aspect to it um uh Zuckerberg plays this so you know it's like we talk about scott and i talk about Lionel of a lot on this and we talk about dwight fry and a lot of the the, the smaller tier you know the lower tier you know bit players that that populated all the universal movies of the 30s and 40s and um and zucco we haven't this is the first time i think we've gotten to a film scott with zucco in it but zucco is a is a critical long lasting you know second secondary character in so many of these uh films we get into around
2: this era with universal um he's and he's he's so much fun to watch he is now he shines in this movie and for all like the slapstick uh, you know comedy bits of pretty much everyone else in the film He is straight. He is evil. He's
0: in a serious film somewhere else over here. And then, you know, Steve, Stephen (laughs) Baber in the comedy on the other side. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is one of those things where like it's a few different movies put together. But um, Zucko brings a sober seriousness to these films, kind of like more like an Edward Van Sloan, where he kind of makes it feel more legitimate just by his very presence
2: yeah he brings a lot of weight very you know seriousness to the role and yeah. i mean just some of the eyes to I me mean, we always talk about oh, just that glare that's that's you know the, the glare of like <laughs> bella lugosi and yeah. i'm not going to equate them apples for apples but man there's a couple of scenes where Zuko is you know the scene he, right now we're talking when he's talking yeah. with mater and later on in yeah. the film and they actually have it's not quite the pen light but it's very dark know he's lighted very darkly but just those eyes um,
0: (laughs) he's got some
2: buggy creepy
0: eyes yeah yeah
2: so you're right right. we so we kind of yeah we skipped around a little bit so um now that the you know marta has been kind of you know tipped off that her dad quote unquote has been been scammed so salvani returns back and you know immediately she's like you know what what, what the hell have you done with our money dad and grabs her you know calls it the toy pistol and goes out now (laughs) looking for uh, Banning and Babe. So yeah, Steve, take it. This is kind of another fun scene you want to take us here. So she's on the hunt now for these guys.
1: Yeah, no. And, and this is exactly another reason why I just, I love the movie so much because of the cast. Um, uh, Marta goes to pay a visit to, uh, Steve Banning and Babe Jensen. And she basically, <laughs> she makes her way into the room with this toy, uh, you know, this like magician's prop gun, and uh, and she, you know, she basically threatens uh, Babe and uh, in, in a classic scene and in, in one of like the, the most iconic moments, I think, in the film, she fires the gun repeatedly with Steve on the other side. And of course, like like Babe, he's just like shaking in his in his shoes. And right, it's, he's it's such it's a just coward. Yeah. It's so it's such co- like like comedy again like there's such a, a comedic tone to it and you're seeing a different side to um, um like the main female lead that's very different than Zita Johan in 32 and mm-hmm. and it's something it's a there's like a playfulness a feistiness that that while Zita had that it's not really quite like what what uh, Peggy Moran has that yeah. does with the character of Marta and uh, I I I can just like envision it right now in my head where she's just uh, she's just like basically like you know it's that fast kind of talk and and she has the gun on him and it's just it's such a great scene.
2: It is well said now she's just you know such a I mean especially in this era of movies someone I used to see a strong proactive woman you know in this role like i mean how many i mean she could be like the gangster like in some other you know what you know some other you know cops and robbers movie you know the guy that comes in with the cigarette in his mouth and with the gun out and the top hat and i mean she plays this really really well comes into the room and yeah i mean calls it a toy gun but this thing is certainly shooting you know (laughs) i'm not sure Um, what the toy
0: aspect of the gun is because it
2: seems to work like a real gun (laughs) so yeah so she's shooting at the door and makes a heart shape (laughs) with the bullets as babe is watching her then that final shot is that one bullet right in the center of the heart and then babe's because she's a she's a a trick
0: shooter (laughs) she's like an annie oakley i guess that's like one of her bits in the show right and the if I have one like, like regret about this film, it's that that plot point never gets to play out at the end. Like I would have loved if she would have at the end, like shot George Zucco with a heart shape on his chest. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I want, I want that to come back at the end. And, and unfortunately she ends up as sort of more the victim in the end, but, uh, but she, no, Peggy Moran's great. She's smart and gorgeous and and funny and you know she and and uh, and dick Ferran really make a good pair and and obviously ben pivar believed that because he he paired them up uh previously to this or, or right after i'm not sure on horror island which he which he also produced uh he definitely thought he had like a, a pair there like a bogart Bacall type thing and they are kind of a they are kind of a b-movie bogart and Bacall. they're
2: they're great together They are. I mean, the chemistry is off the charts, and you could see why somebody would want to use them you know these actors a couple of times i know peggy's had a couple of you know a few interviews and you know asking you know to describe her time on the set and it just sounds like they all had a blast you said that's great um you know, like wallace ford who plays babe he was just a total cut up like what you see mm-hmm. you know is babe on the screen that was wallace ford he was just that that's his yeah that's him being a, yeah exactly. right he's just basically playing himself which is kind of cool to see so yeah just a great scene and you know she comes in guns blazing and Um, you know, finally Steve comes out of the bathroom and kind of, you know, she's got, you know, she's got a, you know, babe almost held up at gunpoint. Um, you know, Steve kind of comes around, you know, takes the gun away and they, they have a, you know, I think Steve kind of talks some sense into her, um, and basically convinces her that, you know, they're legitimate, um, you know, they, they didn't just fleece her, you know, the father for money. Like they actually have, you know, a plan and they go, um, is, you know, expedition um and she basically says well I'm not, you know, allowing you just to take, you know, my dad out to the desert to be killed. I'm coming along with you um so again extremely strong and i guess at this point the gun's away but man she's still on fire and um it's like no i'm i'm coming with you guys so you know get ready for me it's it's the Marion thing like i'm your goddamn partner i'm telling you right. right. it's
0: it's not shot for shot but again the long shadow of the stone cast is, is really amazing uh so but but it's a great gimmick to get them all out on the expedition together and they're all in the now they're all in the pith helmets and the you know the khakis and everything and they're they're gonna head out into the desert and
2: search for, uh, you know, the 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 tomb of Karas or tomb of Anakna. Sorry. So be, before we hit the desert, I just I gotta say this because I I this is just such a funny line, and I don't know if they would ever say. I mean, I guess they could in in today's day and age. I don't want to be too sensitive, but so when Marta finally leaves the Roman babe, who's like sweating bullets, goes goes over <laughs> Steve and says to him. You know, women go nuts after being sewn in half one too many times. <laughs> 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 I just thought that was hilarious. There's very few <laughs> moments you can get that line into a film,
0: and I'm glad they did.
1: <laughs> it, it really, it, and again, you know, the, like the script, uh, it, the, this film that they were working with. It, again, I, I just feel like it's so punchy. Uh, Griffin J. Maxwell Shane, they wrote it, and there's such a, a punch to every single bit of dialogue and and it's only played you know to the straight like it plays to the strengths of, of the cast that you have and you know just one more like just one more moment for that scene with peggy Moran as as marta where she goes in like and now where is that money you know it's that's right it's such it's so snappy and yeah. uh, I, I i could just keep on watching that scene over and over again
2: exactly yep so yeah, now we're in the desert, as you mentioned, Jim. Um, so finally, you're seeing uh, Salvani's money being put to good work. We have diggers, we've got shovels in the ground, and at um, one point they uncover the bones of another archaeologist who had been, you know, lost. I think they said like you know a couple of years ago, um, looking for Olancha's tomb. So you'd have to imagine, you know, he you know, caught it or was, you know, found some. Um, you know, I mean, they didn't really explain how he died, but you'd almost have to imagine it was probably. Um, zucco and you know one of his minions you know putting a stop to another um exhibition right exhibition yeah yeah yeah.
0: well yeah you you just assume um or, or not Zucko, it's it's zucco's uh a- a predecessor the the older guy you know there's a part of this where you know if you again uh steven we talk about like looking at these uh in in their in their situation of the, the moment they came in out in right but also you do have to kind of look at these with a 2021 lens you know just as, as an idea and and you get to this thing where, like, you know, George Occo's character is trying to stop foreigners from coming to his country and pillaging the tombs of his ancestors and taking all the their stuff for their own to make themselves wealthy. And there's moments where you're kind of like, I'm actually not sure who the hero and the villain is in this movie sometimes. <laughs> like, you do get the motivation of, of the priests of Karnak, like... They're trying to protect their own their family and their their ancestors and their their history from these people that are coming to their country and taking it away. so it's so it's it's of all the monsters, uh, you know, as sympathetic as as you know the Frankenstein monster is, and and the Wolfman, and as fearsome as Dracula's, um, the Mummy is is that character that I always like. I'm I'm kind of rooting for him a little bit.
1: I agree completely, and I feel like one of the reasons why I've always enjoyed the Mummy so much is the fact that he, you know, aside from like the 1932 film where it does play a bit you know, like Dracula and yeah, understandably so with the further, with like the later films, like, you know, hand or tomb or, or, or curse or any of those, they're, they're really quite different from everything else that was being done. And I think a lot of that does have to absolutely play into the part that, you know, when, when you got into the late, when you get into the later Frankenstein and, and Wolfman and, and Dracula films, they all start to intertwine with one another. Whereas the mummy always kind of existed on the outside of that. And regardless of any plans to like bring the mummy in, like the films that we got in those original legacy films, they were just very standalone Mm -hmm. in their own corner of this universe that we had. And so, you know, when you're dealing with this character, you know, not only are there the elements where, yeah, like the, like the tomb raiders, the archaeologists are, are coming in and, and they're pillaging and, so you get like that kind of like argument for both sides, but then also with like the mummy, absolutely not so much maybe in this one, but in like definitely like the sequels, he becomes this proto slasher figure where mm-hmm. he's just like ro- ro- roaming around, strangling people and killing people. Yeah. And like, that's something that you've never really got with the wolf manner. You never really got with Frankenstein. They would, you know, attack people, but like the mummy was just more of like this, like, you know, single-minded monster where this is just what he was doing. And he was always very different than the other uh, films that were produced.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it, I mean, it makes me think a lot of the creature from the black lagoon, you know, a couple of years after this, where he's, you know, they're intruders in his territory and he's protecting what he thinks is his. And so there's just this simple-minded nobility to it, to the character. You're like, okay, no, I get that. And also you're like, well, you traveled 6,000 miles to go someplace that people warned you against going. So the, the
2: hero bears a certain amount of responsibility. What it's interesting with Karis too, just the motivation is motivation for killing is different mm-hmm. in this movie than some of the sequels to come after. So in this one, it's all about the Tana leaf fluid. So it seems like it, he's basically put, or whoever's you know, in control of Karis at this point, and it's his yeah. um, high priest or one of his minions mm-hmm. that they'll place you know, tannily fluid in a location or a tent. Right. Right. And the, and, you know, the command of is go search out, find the fluid, drink the fluid, and then kill everyone who's around. Right. Later on, like with the, more of the Lon Chaney character, it's more like he's the, the high priest or, you know, whoever's in, you know, kind of in charge will tell him explicitly go out and kill, you know, Joe. Yes. Schmo, right. Yeah. I mean, it, so it seems like it seems the motivation of caruses is, is it changes a little bit from this yeah. movie. The, to the this one, he's like an addict and they're, they're
0: holding yeah. his, his junk, Hostage, totally. you know, like totally. no, go go here. Here's your stuff, man. Um, yeah, <laughs> he's just a tool, man, and and it's 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 a shame. It, it never, it never ends for Karis, does it? You know, he, he gets mummified alive, and then he gets turned into like this, like
2: you know, the 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 whipping boy for for the Temple of Karnak guys and stuff. He does all <laughs> their dirty work. Right now, at least in other films, like he had kind of the motivation that he was trying to you know reunite with you know the princess. This one yeah, here, yeah. it's basically exactly find your drug. You know, yeah. take the draw, get strong. And then just, you know, if you have time, just kill everybody that's, you know, in the, in <laughs> the so vicinity of <laughs>
1: trouble.
2: <laughs> Do some strangling. Yeah. Um, and,
1: you, and you see, this is the thing that I feel like Universal has never really understood uh, in, a, in a further mummy film. Like you never really saw them play up this element of Karis again, like alone from the fact that you never saw Karis again, aside from like the hammer picture. But like, there's so many of these like great elements that make this such a fun monster and such a fun monster movie that I'd love to see, you know, explored in in an eventual, you know, reboot or remake or whatever else it is that they end up doing with the character.
0: Yeah, I would just love to see a movie with a mummy wrapped in bandages. Yeah, the most recent iterations, which we don't need to get into. I think there's a hesitance Uh, on studio's part just because now you know this this whole mummy everything from from like i said like scooby-doo to like you know all uh, you know animated cartoons to 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 the you know breakfast cereals and everything it's like the frankenstein monster the the image we have the graphic image we have in our heads now as a culture of the mummy is has turned into something more adorable than frightening um it's 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 so familiar. Uh, we're we understand this character, and we've seen this character in so many times as not a scary character in in a commercial or, or in you know the monsters or in whatever that I think a studio person nowadays goes like, well, we, we gotta do something different because this 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 look of this character is so familiar, we have to, you know, go a different direction. And then there's a logic to that. Having said that, I think there's something so terrifying about the this bandage wrap thing stalking slowly towards you that I'd love to see it in something.
2: Yeah. I mean it's become such an iconic um, you know, what everyone thinks about is the mummy. So I kind of feel for you know the younger generation or you know kids that, you know, geez, I want to see a mummy movie and they put on the 32 call film and they're like Where, where's the mummy and then it's like and i've, I've read just you know i think definitely since starting this podcast but over a few years that that movie seems to be getting quite a bit of hate from you know probably not like you know folks our age but like say that you know they have the younger generation coming up here that you know they're getting into the monsters and you know frankenstein mummy dracula blah blah blah. they're waiting for some dude to walk around in bandages and kill people and then mm-hmm. they see the boris call movie
0: you don't you don't get this this the, the gratification that you're expecting yeah it's it's sort of the irony of, of that first prototype film right. um uh and 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 you know and i get the idea of like because the thing with the mummy is you're always kind of like well you could just run away really fast because he's not going to catch you but, <laughs> but 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 you know it's it's i always talk about it's the it's the pepe lepew thing where the, <laughs> the 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 female cat can run away as fast as she can and she turns around and there he is yes um <laughs> it's like Jason. It's like Michael Myers, and and obviously the mummy. There's there's a there's a horror logic that is not physical logic that um that these
2: things function on. But oh, we should hold, probably get back to the plot here. Hold on, Jim. So Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, and Pepe Le Pew. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Same dynamic. I'm just gonna I'm telling right, you, okay, you, gonna... you
0: can't you can't get you run as fast as you can. You can't get away. Got it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, you know, I love that. uh, Just that imagery of that in my mind and, and, you know i'm just gonna start to be the biggest proponent for a new mummy movie on universal monsters universe and hopes that like blumhouse or or yeah. universal pictures notices and says steven you know what we need to bring you in to be the creative architect behind this and then we could just continually reference this episode while totally. like developing it and 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 jim and and scott and just help so influence what that next mummy movie could be I,
0: I i see i see you sitting down with with the studio head and 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 by the way but my studio heads are for some reason are always cigar chomping guys from Jersey. And he's like, he's like, "So tell me more about this Pepe Le Pew idea." Um, no, no,
2: no. So, so let's get that. It's much slow as moving involve- and culturally insensitive, just like Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we're having so much fun with this banter. But I'm thinking, let's get back to the desert really quick, possibly before we, before we lose our listeners. This is uh, this has been awesome, man. So yeah, back at the desert, and uh, so Babe Jensen has uh, dynamite. So of all the people on this expedition who would be handling explosives, it probably wouldn't be Babe, but he is. And it, they go off, and it sounds like, and again, so we kind of see, you know, Zucko and the minion kind of spying on everybody. So it's probably meant to believe, or I'm thinking that the explosive might have been set early to, to kill Bay, but regardless, it goes off, um, takes down a piece of, um, of rock, and basically uncovers Karis's cave. So they were kind of digging in one location, explosion happens in another location, and they see the seal of the seven jackals They go in, and it's Karis's cave. I'd like to mention that this
0: this the finale of this film takes place in the woodsiest part of Egypt I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's there's quite a lot of underbrush and trees and stuff, and it looks suspiciously like the Hollywood hills <laughs> or Malibu, possibly. But I think they get away with it. with black and white, they definitely get away with it. Um yeah, so but they they, they inadvertently. I, I like the idea that the villains inadvertently actually reveal the entrance
2: to the tomb for the for the heroes. Right. Exactly. So they go in um, and f- uncover carus and you know take him out of, of the tomb and lay him out. Um, at one point, so really it's Banning and Petrie that are you know looking over and kind of examining Karis and you know make the mention of you know how lifelike he is and etc. So Banning is called out. Honestly, I, I forget why. It's some business that you know takes Banning now out of the cave and. Um, and Holdheb comes in, um, surprises Petrie. I mean, obviously, they know each other from the Cairo Museum. So Petrie is um, not suspicious, but I mean, he's surprised to see him, but doesn't think there's anything ominous going on. After, so two, after
0: he said that, that this was all nonsense, right? Yeah. Right.
2: Exactly. <laughs> he just happens to be there. So um, so the two of them start examining, um, you know, Karas and Petrie holds um, up Karras' hand and can feel a, a slight pulse and um, at that point, man, I think I would have been out of the cave, but he's like, oh, wow. Yeah, there's a, a pulse. He's alive. Wow. That's kind of interesting. And then, um, um, and um have pulls out a little vial of, and makes it clear, oh, this vial has nine of uh, the fluid of nine tana leaves. So of course, yeah. <laughs> he gives it a car. and sense, oh, wow. His, uh, his pulse is getting really fast. That's <laughs> interesting. He's you know, thinking about it. And it's like, dude, okay. Um, it takes him a bit. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't see what's coming. Um,
0: I just, I mean, this movie goes like forty minutes before you see the mummy. I mean, mm-hmm. the the majority of this film of this film about a mummy has no mummy in it, and to its credit, it keeps you very interested, uh, uh, and 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 you know, patient up to to that that reveal. And I think it works because then the reveal of the mummy is kind of a big deal. It's not like you just as opposed to you know. The 32 film, where you you actually see the mummy within the first few minutes of the of the movie, um, this film plays with that and teases you, and it's entertaining enough that it keeps you holding on uh, until the reveal
2: happens. Yeah, so obviously, Kauris comes alive and sits up, and you get to see. You know, mummy in in just the full detail with the wrappings and just looks yeah. absolutely amazing. Oh, it's um, sits up really slowly and um, chokes out Petrie. Um, so falls dead. Um, Zucko and mummy disappear and then Banning comes back in and find Petrie dead and you know with the markings of you know just white like the white powder around his his neck, which seems to be the calling card of the mummy, and we'll see it a little <laughs> bit later on in the film. From you know another victim that there's white markings around around the neck.
1: I think this is where Tyler's you know physicality really comes into play, and again, you know this is something that you know it's also played up with having someone like Lon Chaney Jr. as the mummy, as Karis uh, specifically, but that there's such a physicality and and believability that comes with him where he seems dangerous. He seems that despite you know lumbering around, that like there's like an incredible grip and strength that he has, yeah. and. Uh, mm-hmm. What I like about it is, you know, it's not particularly a graphic or brutal, but it does like scare, you know, like the tonne leaves out of you because there's this frightfulness that comes to this monster that that you just it's almost played for laughs later on in, in regards to like the general idea of the mummy, like how you reference like Scooby-Doo or like these, yeah. or like maybe like goosebumps. But when you're looking at it in 1940 and, and what they had done in, in the mummy's hand, there's a real seriousness to it and, and it still works and it still holds up. And I think a lot of that plays because of who you have as the mummy. And I love Karloff. I mean, Karloff uncanny. he's, he's, you know, he, this was his movie this you know he was the mummy but with yeah. Tyler you know Tyler really just reinvented it and and gave us you know I think more of the mummy that we all think of and we all respond to and and for me I grew up with the 1959 one that was the mummy movie for me and and so there's a lot of Tom Tyler in what Christopher Lee had done and it's really an incredible performance
0: yeah I think the, the scary idea of The Mummy comes from its inevitability and it's the inability to reason with it. And, and I do think in that way, I think maybe more than the Frankenstein monster, The Mummy is more of a prototype for like a Jason Voorhees type character. The, there's an idea that like, it's like the terminator like you can't reason with it it's not going to stop it if it, once it's coming after you there's nothing on earth you can do it'll follow you to the ends of the earth it's undying um you, you can't buy it off you can't you know plead it off um it's merciless and it it is going to kill you one way or the other and I think that's where the terror of the thing comes it's it's a it's a human shaped thing that has no humanity anymore and I think that and it has no face too. I think in in removing mostly the the facial expression, all you have is these eyes, and and I think that's what's really um really makes
2: it a, a terrifying icon, horror icon. And there's, and there's something so personal about being choked to death. Yeah, I mean, it's not an instantaneous death. It's not like you decapitated and you just black. I mean, it, 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 it as the victim, you're looking at your attacker. You're looking at this chorus. For ten or fifteen seconds, as he's just squeezing the life out of you. I mean that, and we've, we've talked about personal deaths before, Jim. We're like, you know, man-made monster, and you know, some right. th- ways he could have done better with knocking off that. Well, you know, when Karis, and you know, to your point, with you know, this guy, with Tom's, is such a big imposing guy. All of these deaths here, where he's choking people out, is extremely. It's not bloody. It's not overly violent. But man, how personal is this death, and how long it takes for these people to succumb to death?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a. It is. It's a personal. He's not killing you as much as he's murdering you and there's a little bit more of a yes, yeah, of a Good thing point. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also again his his physical size, you know, we're getting into these this era with um with someone like Dick Foran who's who was a western actor who's who's a heftier guy than say a uh, a 1930s guy like Colin Clive, right? So as your protagonist gets bigger physically, your your and your, your your monster needs to get bigger proportionally. So you need someone who can seem intimidating and dangerous compared to a a leading actor who himself is physically seems pretty capable. So
2: Marta and Banning are kind of hanging around in Karis's cave, figuring out the next move and um, kind of trying to put the pieces together to figure out how they could find Alanka's tomb, because they're really not coming up with any clues digging in the desert. And um Marna, of all people, um, kind of a non-archaeologist, kind of um, you know, looks at some of the um, just some of the drawings around the cave and basically decides, or her opinion is that there's a secret passage connecting the cave to Alanka's tomb. And I mean, Banning immediately is on board and says, No, you're absolutely right. Um, so Hey, kudos to, to Marta for doing her thing. And I think it was kind of the first scene in the movie where she wasn't, you know, just pissed off and angry. Like she's legitimately now invested in this and is trying. Right. To help her. I think you know she does a passing, you know, sentence or two, basically her saying, "Oh, now I'm I'm happy. I can contribute something besides just moping."
0: <laughs> right. And and I, I think she's uh, you know there's there's a good evolution of the relationship between uh, Steve and Marta in this. And I think the first step of that of uh, is is she sees the sorrow he he has over over Petrie dying you know she sees the here's a real guy with real feelings and sense he's sensitive and he cares and stuff
2: yeah so they've got a i mean someone that we haven't mentioned before so there's a digger kind of a lead lead digger named Ali yeah who is, you know, at this point, kind of keeping an eye on things. He's, you know, got a rifle. And, um, you know, basically after, um, you know, finding Petrie dead and, and everything, all the diggers, you know, they must have had, you know, a few dozen diggers um, have all left. They're all scared to death, um, you know, especially since finding Carus's um, tomb. But this Ali is staying, um, you know, true to this this group. So Ali is out with a rifle. Um, so the plan is, you know, now that they have this idea that there's an underground um, or a, a hidden passageway to get Ali and, you know, maybe a couple of the folks that are still there to start digging. So right. they go Ali, and there's a cut scene of um, one of the minions, one of uh, Zucco's minions with the tonally fluid in Ali's tent. And, you know, you kind of see what's going to happen here now. So Ali goes back to his tent for whatever reason. And of course, you know, Kar- Karis attracted to um tired of the tana leaf comes in finds the fluid and you know of course off's ali so now yeah, they don't absolutely. have their best digger <laughs> yeah now
0: now they don't have like yeah the help and they don't have the digger and stuff. yeah and and it it sets up a really cool uh situation where now they're now they're kind of stranded in the middle of the egyptian desert by themselves i don't know if any of them actually speaks any of the l- local languages people are dying left and right and center like you know so so now it's like it's like alien or something you know they're they're before they realize that they're in a very dire situation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a kind of a quick scene with Salvani and Marta and um, Banning and Babe around a campfire, and they're going to go to bed. Marta and Salvani return to their tent and then find uh, Ali dead. I'm assuming I don't know if they were sleeping in the same tent, but you know, certainly in the same whereabouts. Right. But uh, where you just hear you know Marta scream, and you know Salvani's ushering her out banning and babe run in and they find ali dead with those same white chalk marks around his throat this is when i guess um you know the end i guess it just it didn't take petrie's death for them to realize that they're in some hot water here so at least at this (laughs) point now banning's first thought is just get everyone the heck out of here right
1: (laughs) you know i i often like think of like how far i would make it into one of these movies and I, yeah, I don't know if I would. I think yeah, I would have been gone by now. <laughs> and and to take it even one step further, again, like on the notion of that, I think we're all collectively in agreement that we do want to see Karis back in some kind of way, and like uh and like um in just a way that we would love to see him. Uh, I would love to cameo in one of these movies as somebody that gets strangled by the mummy. Like I don't need a speaking role. I don't right. need to, you know. I just want to be like. I want my claim to fame to be like. Oh, that was the, you know, the poor schmuck that got like strangled out in like first right. uh, moment that he came back to life.
2: Yeah, that um, Stephen can really cross his eyes and you know gasp and. That's right. Yeah, he was, he was <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there's a there's a funny moment now. I think I think it might be my my favorite babe moment where, um, you know, after Cars has been choking all these people. Steve hears Babe choking and he comes and he's like comes out, he's like, Oh no, the mummy's getting him. And it turns out it's it's there's this pebble gag that Silvani has been trying to teach Babe where he's <laughs> supposedly swallows the pebble and he doesn't really swallow the pebble and ends up taking out somebody's ear and stuff. And it and it's it's just it turns out his Babe has been trying to practice on his own and he almost choked himself on a on a pebble, which I, I find. Right.
2: <laughs> really funny. yeah it's um, fun I mean all these little side bits and yeah, he goes back to that again you know, like the, the interplay between Salvani and and babe is really nice you know they're, well, they're what, fun together and well, you know
0: films are and I learned this with my first film where I put I put nothing funny in, in it and and what happens is you know you're you're asking people to invest up you know 60 90 120 minutes in in this thing you've created and people need a release. Uh, especially if it's something tense or scary or whatever, what it does is if you if you put if you don't put that release in there in some kind of comedy or something to to let people have that they'll find something to laugh at that you don't want them to laugh at. So it's it's good to have that little bit of stuff because the human mind needs a little bit of balance and and you can up the the funny stuff makes the scary stuff funnier or, the funny stuff makes the scary stuff scarier and the scary stuff makes the funny stuff funnier uh, it's 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 two sides of the same coin and and this is something that really we have to credit Universal for. This is like a cipher that they unlocked, uh, that we all get to enjoy now with, you know, movies like Tremors or Bubba Hotep or, or anything, anything that combines this kind of the Frighteners, you know, f- humor and 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 horror together.
2: So there's a bunch of business. Um, the Minion who's kind of been, you know, lurking around this camp, has put Tana Fluid in um Salvani's and Mata's mm. tent. Another night they go to bed and um, you know, I guess banning it once they find um, Ali dead, banning is like, all right, we are we're out of here. So right now it's the dead of the night. So it was like first thing, first light in the morning. I'm taking everybody out of here. I'll you know, I'll maybe return at some point. But my first concern is um, everyone's safety. So Steve's going to stand up or stand guard. Everyone else goes to bed. So Marta, um, Silvani go to bed and then Silvani actually looks over and sees the Tana fluid you know, sitting beside his bed. And then Karis comes in and, you know, starts to choke him out. And, um, and I kind of forget what happens now. Does Marta, I don't think she screams, but for some reason, Karis doesn't kill Silvani. He chokes him out unconscious, but stops and then grabs Marta and yes. kind of carries her back to unlock his tomb, and I'm trying to. Did I miss something? Like, why didn't he just kill Savani? Other than I, I, that he's good for the story. You know,
0: I, I I think she does. She screams, and he gets distracted. And for one reason or another, he fixates on her. You know, he doesn't. He doesn't specifically have a mission to kill Silv- Silvani. He just has this whatever you want to call it like a killer impulse. And maybe I mean maybe he thinks he has killed Silvani, and you know he doesn't. Obviously, the moment he doesn't stop to check for a pulse. I guess, um, uh, but he sees a much more uh, attractive victim, you know, perhaps in this thing. And I do think it's we do channel a little bit of the original mummy, where I think he sees a little bit of his lost love in her, and and has to is is compelled to do. I uh, uh, Stephen, I always call it the Forbidden Planet. <laughs> or, you know with that famous poster where you carry the the, the dame you know mm-hmm. in your arms went walking away the big hulking brute uh i think he he falls victim to the compulsion to to do a forbidden planet with her <laughs> um, yeah
1: that's actually one of the pictures that uh i i have like a whole album of photos and th- th- those are some of my favorite shots of of tyler uh carrying her yeah uh, some of my favorite job. shots in any of the universal monster movies to be honest
0: yeah because because i and, and again not to whatever i i mean i've 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 Done some films, I've, I've acted in some films, not being a humongous guy myself. I will say, carrying the dead weight of a, of a woman in your arms where they're not helping, they're not holding on your neck or something like that, that is a challenge. And then walking or doing anything like that. And again, this is where you get into something where, like, a, a, an actor of, of size and strength, like, like Tom Tyler, you have the benefit that he he literally can just hoist whatever uh, is Peggy Moran 105 pounds or 115 pounds, you know, but 115 pounds of dead weight in the front of you while you're walking up a rocky hill and you're covered in bandages first of all um there's there's layers of difficulty stacking on top of each other here
2: and um and tyler does a fantastic job steve talk to me here about this this is always something that's kind of interesting to me so again up until this point the um so zucco's instructions to um cars is basically you know sniff out the, the tonally fluid drink it kill everybody and, you know, pretty simple. So, I mean, unless there was some, you know, misdirection off screen. So Karis goes into the tent, thinks he's killing Salvani. So tell, talk to me here. I mean, just I just want your opinions now. Why isn't he killing Marta? And why does he take – he just picks up and, and, and carries Marta off?
1: I felt like, oh, again, like it's kind of like what we touched on earlier. It's the fact that, you know, there is that – there's almost sort of that like ro- romanticism or that that idea of reincarnation at play that that's in with like the mummy from like the thirty two original. And for whatever reason, I feel like maybe he didn't really necessarily go into it here, but I just kind of like always are struck by the fact that like he's just somehow seeing in her that this is like Ananka or or or, or a past love of his or a, or a, a kinship uh, that he can recognize, and that's why he makes off with her as he does. That, that's just always how I've kind of viewed it
2: yeah. yeah I mean it takes him back to you know alanka's tomb and then sets her on the table out in front of to Zuko. so it makes it makes me believe that something may have happened off screen that you know the instructions have changed at some point zucko's character has seen Ma and is you know yeah. attracted and starts formulating this plan to give themselves both eternal life yeah um so He's it must have mummify been... her right
0: I mean mama's um, mum- 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 eyes because I don't think he's going to mummify her. He's not actually going to like scoop out her entrails and take her brain out. And, you know, um, let's uh, hope not, so, which, you know, the, <laughs> it, just for a moment to get into actual mummy, dumb. you know, you know, the Egyptians obviously never, I don't think I have to tell too many people who listen to this podcast, this, but just to whatever, you know, the Egyptians never mummified their dead with the intent that they would come back to life. The idea was that in preserving, the body and all the organs separately that, that that made the transition into the the afterlife easier uh and they would arrive in a in a better state into the next world um the Egyptians never conceived this this idea of 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 you know them coming back to life. Notably, because the you know one of the first things they would do would, would, when they're mummifying your body was take a red hot poker, shove it up your nose through your the bones of your nose, and scoop and turn your brain into applesauce mm-hmm. and let it drain out. Which is not something you do if you plan on that person coming back to life <laughs> ever. Um, so while being mummified alive is a horrible fate, yeah,
2: having your brain scooped out and melted not so awesome either right? It's, I mean, I remember as a kid doing a, yeah, doing a project on mummification and couldn't yeah. believe, I mean, man, the detail these, they it's went so into. Gruesome. It's so gruesome. Your yeah. heart goes in one jar and your lungs yeah. go in another. Oh my stuff. gosh. It's, it's like gnarly, a total, man. total autopsy. Yeah. Like you yeah. said, going up to the nose and, you know, just yeah. liquefying your brain and it's a yeah, hell of right. a thing. So, um, yeah. So Charis is you know, choked out Savani. Now we have Mara back with uh zucco at um Alanka's tomb and you know zucco is you know now you see kind of the romance he's you know he's becoming um i don't know kind of the horny old mr zucco yeah and he wants this gr- girl we saw it briefly when he comes <laughs> to visit her and, and dissuade her from going to the desert
0: right but now it's, it's in full bloom and he's decided she's going to be his thing. And again, I do think it's just a light quote from the original uh, uh, Mummy film. This idea of like finding an eternal mate, uh, you know, it, it gives the villain a, a purpose, at least beyond, you know, just revenge or killing.
1: I do love Zucko at the end of this picture. It's, it's just such a, like you said, a mainstay of the Universal Monster films and these of movies. And he, he just adds so much to it. And the interplay with him near the end is fantastic.
0: He doesn't do much different between characters. He's always kind of George Zucko, but yeah. what he does fits everything pretty well. It's it's not generic, it's just it kind of fits. Um I said you know, the ending of this film, the the that that interior set of the temple with the jackals and stuff, like they did not cheap out on that. I mean, sometimes these these lower budget universal films, the end story gets a little, you know, skimped. Um this is a great set with the giant statue and the the stone, you know, uh, bed they, they put Marta on. And the flambeaus and the, the tunnels and, and the hieroglyphs and stuff like that. It's a, it's a flipping fantastic. It's like a James Bond set. It's it, fantastic looking.
2: It really is. Now I have the same note. I mean, any budget on this movie, the $80,000, probably 70000 of it went to the scene. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, just yeah. a beautiful temple and just so spacious. It reminds me, you know, going like Dracula's Castle, just like these faraway shots. And it just seems like it's right. just like these endless... These endless high walls and, uh, you know, and ceilings and everything. Just a super, super scene. Yeah, that's a
0: big soundstage. They devoted to that. That's really good. And I don't know if that's a I know that the exterior of the temple is is a leftover from a film called Green Hell, which which was another film that I don't know. Did it come out or I'm not sure if. If, if perhaps I, it was abandoned, but I, um, they, they definitely, you know, got to reuse that set, And that's why that set looks a lot more Incan than it does Egyptian. You know, it's got the, the more uh, South American faces, but this interior said, no, it's fantastic. And, and my other note I have, I, I want to get it out is, is that Samara so has been taken into this temple, um, by, by, by the mummy, by Karis and, 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 uh, and she's going to be mummified alive, you know, Steve's racing around trying to find her and he has to, he can't find the secret passage that Marta, you know, sort of predicted and he has to stop and he finds a bit of pottery and he has to use his archeology span for a minute to decipher the thing. He has to stop and do like, like a little bit of translation in that as, as the, as we're building this climax and it's so dramatic and dynamic and there's a mummy stalking and it's out to get people. um, He has to stop and do a little like academia thing. So, for George Zucko's character poo-pooing his his uh, his actual you know archaeological uh, credibility, I just got to say Steve Bannon shows up. Deciphers the hieroglyphs and figures out the path into the secret tomb.
2: Yeah, not just a, not just a a tomb raid. But yeah, yeah, puts on his little. He should have just all he needed were like little bifocals and you know his little feather duster. <laughs> you know. He's he's not just a handsome face. He really is, and it and this is the kind of yeah.
0: thing again I go back with like when Harrison Ford like stops and turns around and goes well actually and you he, he realize that Indiana Jones can stop and talk for thirty minutes straight about you know some some dead culture. He's not just a tough dude, uh, and he's not just a great robber. He actually is someone who who is skilled in his discipline. And that just makes the character more interesting.
2: Absolutely. I know you said it earlier, Jim. I mean, this is what attracts, you know, eventually Mara to him because he does see how multi-dimensional he is. You know, yeah. he's not just a one-dimensional, you know, Tomb yeah. Raider guy. Like he's a very deep, caring. Yeah. And he's also not much he's not a, he's not a romantic,
0: suave guy. The, part of the this, the bit of them sort of falling for each other, uh, him and Marta in this film, that I enjoy is, the, is that he's sort of the last one to figure out that there's this attraction thing growing between them. He's kind of clueless in that way, and you get the feeling, while well, Babe's sort of the guy who's always after the, the dames um steve's sort of dopey in that aspect and that makes him more interesting and and, yeah. and likable too that he's 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 not you know just after the, the 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 dames he's he's sort of a he's sort of a klutz in that aspect of his personality
2: right now he's all about the professional and you know being successful yeah i mean at that yeah. some point like marta kisses him he's like what 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 like yeah, no, exactly, <laughs> and, 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 again, and that makes her the
0: the uh, the one pushing the 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 that aspect of the story forward, and and it's a nice flip flop that, and that plays out towards towards the end, which we'll get to the very end, in, in.
2: so yeah, we have a scene. Um, so Babe, I think for the first time in this movie, really becomes you know not just um, I would say like the. Kind of the joker character, he gets a little more, you know proactive and, yeah. um, you know with a gun in hand finds Alanka's, like the temple and you could I guess you kind of see like a jackal running around and you know Babe takes out his gun shoots the jackal and um and Hoheb who is inside the temple with Mara he has the gunshots um puts down his instruments of you know whatever he's doing his instruments of mummifying business he picks up a gun and goes outside and confronts Babe yeah. so at one point you know Babe you know. Holds up, holds him at gunpoint, holds uh, you know, Zako at gunpoint and says, I'm going to give you the count kind of three to tell me where the girl is. And Zako's like, oh, come on, you're not going to shoot an unarmed man. And Babe's like, all right, one, he's like, no, you're not going to shoot me. Two, he's like, you're going to kill me in, in, in bloodlust? And Babe's like, three, bang, 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 and <laughs> shoot Zako dead. <laughs> yeah, And he goes tumbling down the stairs. Steve, tell talk to me about this one. This doesn't, I mean, yeah, it. I mean, not that it was cold blood, but this doesn't feel like uh, something Babe would have done.
1: I, I, you know, I like I like it too because the thing is it. You talk about how characters are set up from when you first meet them in the beginning of the film. And it really, I think, like subverts the expectation that when you get to the end of this, there's and this is, uh, you know, it's somewhat of a tangent uh, to go off on. But what I love about most of the later Universal Monster movies is that within like a tight final like 10 minutes or so, the whole entire movie is wrapped up. And yeah. so there's oh, yeah. like an immediacy and urgency to every single action. Like every single action that's happening on screen is so deliberately done that it's just you're, you're enthralled with watching. this kind of like almost like this frenetically paced manic energy mm-hmm. of how are they going to like wrap this up? How are they going to stop the bad guy? And so when uh, when when Dave shoots him dead, it's almost kind of like you're watching it. And for a 1940s movie, you know, you're kind of shocked because they don't really do that today with today's movies. And uh, and I think that's again why, like, I mean, these films are classics for a reason. Yeah. But uh, I was shocked the first time that I ever saw that, uh, and the first time that I ever saw this movie, I'm thinking it was like 2015, 2016, so maybe like five, six years ago. And um, it was just, it was just incredible. I, 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 again, I, I love that he kills him, especially because like they've had this arc from how they've known each other from the beginning to then to get to that moment with everything else going on. It works.
2: Yeah. I was kind of surprised. And yeah, Jim, help me out here. So just even though that line, I'm kind of surprised they used, you know, the writers in the movie that Zucko said to him, are you going to kill me in cold blood? And he does. We well, Zucko can... pulls out a gun right at the last minute. He pulls out the gun and he shoots Babe. Babe's injured
0: in this, you know, exchange. Yep. So technically he's not unarmed, but but Babe thought he was unarmed and he's going to do it anyway. The, I have two things. The first is, you know, Ben Pivar, the producer of this film, and he produced uh, She-Wolf of London. He produced Horror Island. He They brought Ben Pivar up right around in the late 30s, early 40s to start taking over some of these things. He did House of Horrors. And he came over from the film noir from universal film noir department around this time universal starts taking advantage of a lot of its 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 film noir people as well as its western uh uh, people cast crew and and you know all around so if you look at this showdown as a as a film noir as as a as a petrified forest type you know bogart uh type scene with with babe or or even let's say uh uh Conrad Bede and Humphrey Bogart's scene at the end of Casablanca was like, you know, I was wanting to shoot Renault, I was wanting to shoot you. There's a hard-boiled side to it that's pretty bleak, and, yeah. and you know, and I, I also think we're a little more sensitive now than the that's audiences be, were at, at that, this point, yeah. That's gotta be, um, uh, But he totally, like, <laughs> I do like how Babe doesn't, Babe doesn't just shoot George Zucko and, and he falls down, he shoots him about five times. Right? He really makes <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> But but my thing is, like, I think we, you know, obviously, uh, Steve and Babe have had all these other adventures that we haven't seen and, you know, that you could go back and there would be all these other, you know, s- you know, stories of them in, in other parts of the world having these crazy, you know, times and because they reference all these old times that they had. I think this is part of Babe's part of their relationship, too. I, th- I think Babe is the guy who, like, when they're going at stuff, Babe will just shoot a dude. Um, I mm-hmm. think that's part of it. I mean, because, you know, Babe's not an archaeologist. Babe's not a thing. Ba- Babe, Babe has explosives. And he shoots people. I and mean, I think that's part of his <laughs> what he brings to the duo. And he has poops uh,
2: and he has poopsie the dancing doll.
0: And it's poopsie the dancing that this little subplot he's got, which okay. Um, we, won't get we
2: won't get into. Him. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we don't need to get in that part because it's a little uh it's it's pretty Pablum. But yeah, um no, I, I love that. And I love like Ch- sako rolls down it's not just a few <laughs> stairs. He rolls down like all 87 stairs oh <laughs> and God. it takes it's... a few minutes and it just Bum, 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 bum. It's, a, it's
1: such um, a
0: great, great and they, scene. They, they give you that time. You're like, that's so satisfying. Um, uh, Scott and I have talked about sometimes like the deaths of the villains in these films isn't quite as gratifying as you want it to be. There's the payoff, you know, you want to see the villain get theirs. And um, this one is definitely not one of those. It, it's fun seeing him just... <laughs> Yeah. Roll and roll and roll. Well, uh, it kind of
1: reminds me a little bit of like, you know, when, when like Renfield dies in Dracula. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's almost like a like you have a sympathy for Renfield almost. And like, you know, he, he has this death scene. But like when you get to like Zucko and like and like uh, and like Han, it's so rewarding,
0: yeah, and gratifying if, if the, and yeah. If the bullets didn't kill him that that fall, really probably he's <laughs> <His, his, laughs> like his bones are just applesauce at this point.
2: Here at the back. <laughs> and, yeah. Well, right? oh, and no and no spoiler alerts. He comes back. He does he does, which is which so is true. We'll, it's, we'll it's get really into that funny. at some point, but
0: and he's not and he's not in like a full body cast somehow.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I just gotta say, um, as a as a child of the 80s, the only thing I can think of when I see the scene, I just want to put a slinky on that top, that oh, top right. step and just watch <laughs> his Slinky go down like for mm-hmm. 10 minutes. That would have been too fun.
0: We'll we'll but, post a link to uh, all about the uh, the Wikipedia page for Slinky, uh, for anyone under
2: five yeah. uh, on the, on the on
0: the Facebook page to explain what we're talking about. <laughs> we should just talk about the mummy makeup and costume for just a second here. Uh, cause we, have kind of s- skipped over it. Um, the, the, first of all, the idea that, that he, his one hand is, is messed up. Um, and it's like any kind of limbs and stuff. It's such a neat aspect and it. And it amplifies this mummy versus other Karloff's mummy, say, and and some some other mummies we, we've seen. Um, it's still sort of hunched and bandaged to his chest, which is, you know, they were buried with their arms crossed like that. It's such a neat idea. And I don't know if that's actually where that mummy's hand title comes from. I'm not exactly sure what the hand part of it refers to, but that's great. And also love, you know, they they went in and they optically blackened out uh, Tom Tyler's eyes in many, and many of the shots. So yeah these POV things where the mummy's coming right at you and reaching out and stuff. Someone went in on like a cell, on a, like a clear piece of acetate or whatever, and painted in black shapes to cover the the whites and the, the pupils and the irises and everything of Tom Tyler's eyes. And in a few shots where you see Tom Tyler's real eyes, you see why they did that, which is a, time laborious and probably slightly expensive technique for a film this of this budget. You see why they did it because when you see his when you see do see glimpse Tom Tyler's human eyes, there's definitely a lot of humanity in there. And by blacking out you you lose all that into these dark pitch voids. Um, there, there's no, there's no person in there anymore, and that's really adds to
2: the terrifying, uh, yeah, totally like, visage of a man. It's great. I mean, such a
0: great makeup.
2: Yeah, I mean, just go fast forwarding, you know, into the '70s and the '80s with like the Halloween series. Like my favorite, Michael Myers, is always when they blacken out those eyes. Like you do yeah. not want to oh, yeah. see the humanity. You just want to see a shell no. of evil. Right, right, right. It's it's the, the 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 mask
0: on top versus the the person underneath and stuff. Um, right. Yeah, no, I think he's great. I think I love that it, you know his. his his. His bandages are kind of hanging off of him and dragging and stuff. He's really, you know, there's there's obviously like some kind of a a jumpsuit type undergarment he's wearing that has that sort of has bandage type material sort of sewn to it. And then they're, they've dressed it around a little bit with that. So it gives him a lot of motion because he's got a lot of it's not action, but he's got a lot of stuff he has to do, like, along with carrying damsels. Uh, you know, he, he stalks, he fights, he, he, he wrestles with uh, Steve at the end. Um, he's got a lot of mobility that he needs to have. And uh, I just think it's a really effective thing. And Tyler cuts it really well. If I dare to be a little bit critical, Chaney Jr. at the point he was playing the mummy, possibly the pension for beer was turning him into something that was not quite as an imposing silhouette <laughs> fair enough <laughs> around the middle. <laughs> I'm trying to be really delicate about how I'm saying this because I love Cheney jr. But, uh, but, um, as far, I mean, Tom Tyler, just he looks like an action figure version of the mummy that I guess that's, that's how I'll say it. And that's really like, you're like, Holy crap, that guy's scary. Like, like yeah. if he wasn't a mummy, that guy would be intimidating. But the fact that he is an
2: undying mummy just adds to the thing. All right. We've got, I mean, this is basically the uh, climatic scene. So let's just, let's take it home here. So we are now inside Alonka's tomb. Um, Zucko is dead. Um, Martyr is tied down and both Babe and um, Banning are inside. And we've kind of have the final showdown with Kauris. And this is when I really wish... They had brought back that bit with Mara in the gun, so yeah. Mara, of course, is tied down. I think it might have been more fun. I mean, I guess you have to have the dams—not that you have to, but um, you know, the damsels tied down. How cool it would have been if, like, say, Babe was tied down, and then so let me I'll take us through the scene. So, Karis comes in, goes after the Tana leaves. So Babe walks in, still with his revolver, his, his pistol, and shoots the ton leaf, or uh, the Tonne leaf cup, out of Karis's hand. So again, going back to Marta here, the sharpshooter. How cool would it have been to give her that bit? You know that she comes in and you know to save someone else's life, uses that sharpshooting skill to you know and then shoot the cup out of Karis's hand.
0: I would I would have loved to have seen suddenly Karas falls over
2: you know having been shot
0: a bunch and you turn around and there's there's Marta sitting there with a the gun or something with, with that would have been great. gun or something it would have it would have been clever I right? I don't know if you were allowed to do that in 1940 I don't know if the woman was allowed to save the, the guys uh, it was, or at least it was frowned on culturally yeah it, it, that would have been a nice uh, turn around and stuff as opposed to Steve having to right. uh, rescue her but it is what it is.
1: Yeah, it would have been uh, just to kind of like also add on to that. Yeah, I think it really would have been a wonderful exclamation point onto the climax of the film where if there was a little bit more of like an agency that Marta had mm-hmm. in basically saving the day uh, because you do have these elements that, again, they're they're interestingly added to the film and to the characters. And, uh, you know, of course, like a 1940s audience is, is, is a little different than, than the way that like we Watch movies now, but I think that that also speaks so much to the fact that like of how invested we are in like Steve Banning and and Marta and 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 all of these characters that you want to see more of them and you want to know a little bit more about them than what's being presented just on screen and yeah. at the end it really would have been fun to see her like with the gun because you get that moment earlier on and. I think, like, you know, a screenwriter today would have absolutely have keyed in on that. Like, oh, no, nope, we had that. So we're going to just tie this one thing, like, right, you know, to the end. Right. And-
2: Everything needs paid off. Yeah, no, for sure. Yep, it would have been yep. neat. But So the Tana leaves a shot out, um, fluid on the all over the floor, kind of running down like a river. And Karis, who's, of course, only motivation or primary motivation is this fluid. Um, lays on the ground and starts slurping up the tonal leaf fluid and, you know, steve comes up behind him and um one of the tortures and basically sets karis on fire and burns it's him a, it's alive finish. Yeah. yeah, i mean karis is
0: actually alive yeah i mean he is a living he's been artificially kept you know uh, around by these ten leaves but he's he's a living thing and and steve our hero Hits him in the back with a torch and sets him on fire and burns him alive. So it's like, yeah, it's, wow, it's that's, a really uh,
1: grizzly finish. And and also, I Tom Tyler, you know, he had this whole background in, in being a stuntman too. So I would imagine this was Tyler doing that, right?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I would. I wouldn't wonder if if he had a double for maybe some stuff. Maybe just in the interest of like makeup taking a while or resets and stuff. But I think Tom Tyler's doing most of the stuff himself, and and I I don't know if he did. It looks like it's just a dummy that's on fire. You never see him getting up and running around and stuff. I don't. I think fire gags were pretty rare back then. Uh, they didn't have the chemicals and fluids that we use now to when you actually light a, an actor or a stunt person on fire. But uh, yeah, it's just a dummy.
2: It looks like uh are sitting there burning, but yep yeah, there he but is to, but to your point Steve, i mean yeah he tom tyler is a stunt man first and actor second so yeah i am mean, sure he did a lot of his own um you know his own stunt work here and managed
0: not to hurt his back like uh, Karloff did carrying <laughs> calling five <laughs> so i i'm just saying there there's a reason you hire like the the, the thicker dude um yeah uh <laughs> you know there's the the mummy's the mummies dust and we cut back to uh you know the back to the bazaar where steve and uh and, and everybody are, are back there, and and the funny thing is that we have uh, a reversal. It's always sad at the end where like there's a, we we did um, what was it? Oh, House of Horrors, where where the, the, the hero convinces the, the the girl to give up her career at the end and just be Mrs. to him, you know? And she's like, oh, I don't really want to be a journalist anymore and stuff. The funny part of this movie is it ends with with Marta actually convincing Steve to, to give up being an archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, this really isn't a really great occupation. You should probably give it up. And he's like, you know, maybe I should.
2: And so there's a yeah, good gets, reversal. Gets a letter from home and sounds like he's, you know, getting his, his, old, his old boss's job. So yeah, things are looking really up for or Steve, at least professionally. So, you know, he and Mata are the couple, and um, Sylvani's there, and, and Babe, yeah. and returning back to America, and that's the movie, guys. So, yeah. just such a blast. Anyone that has not seen um, The Mummy's Hand, if, you know, whatever, I I... I can't imagine why you'd, you wouldn't want to see it, but man, this is, this is a really fun one. This is a really fun one. Again, like as Steven and, 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 you know, Jim had pointed out, if you like like the later 99 movies, the Summers movies, it's really did start here. If you like Indiana Jones, man, you could yeah. argue that it, this is lifted almost right out of of here. A lot of tropes from Mummy's Hand, um, you know, with Spielberg yeah. and, and Indiana it's, Jones. So check yeah. this one out. This is an important film. Yeah.
0: Apples and Orange is different from, from the, the Karloff-Freund- uh, film, which 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 I love too, and which is a amazing amazing piece of film history, obviously, really critical part of Universal's uh, uh, you know film history. But this is it, this takes a
2: different tack. And um and it's super enjoyable. Yeah, Steven, So per- good to have you, man. Really, really, I was looking forward to this, and just honor to you know share some audio with you, and um you just you bring a just incredible insight to uh, a fantastic movie. It was a great choice, and um would love to do this again with you at some point.
1: Absolutely, I, I had a blessed recording with you. I'm I'm so glad that we got to do my favorite of the Universal Pictures. I, I think Hand is just such a fun entry that if you like adventure, you like horror, you like monsters. If you have no, you know, idea of the whole iconography or the whole, you know, mythology of the Universal Monster movies, it's such an easy family friendly film to just pop on and enjoy for like an hour and like 10 minutes. Um, but thank you so much for having me. And, and let's not forget that Steve Banning and, 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 you know, Abe, they come back the later movies so so i'd love to hear you guys talk about them and i definitely enjoy being back yeah maybe
0: maybe we have to have you back for for those ones and stuff so we should we should (laughs) we should pencil that in i think that'd be really fun man it's been great talking with
2: you
1: absolutely thank you so much
2: all right jim pleasure as always good good job man thank you you too likewise and uh thank you everyone for listening to the bogle pass horror podcast we will talk to you soon see you next time
1: Thank you for listening to this episode. But the fun does not stop here. You can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of Shadow Camera Film and Entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino. The music was composed by Sean Poole. Opening and closing narration are by me, Kat Herons. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Or Podcast.